So welcome everybody to Behind the Shield, uh, a podcast, a monthly gathering uh, in the guise of a podcast of cybersecurity professionals discussing the industry's issues and hot topics. My name is Marco Estrella and I'll be today's host. Uh, I'm hoping you had the opportunity, everybody, um, to uh, recharge the batteries over the holidays, spend a little bit of time with friends and family, uh, overindulge maybe in, in uh, holiday turkey and, and delicious foods like I did. Um, I want to thank everybody who's listening to the podcast today uh, for taking the time. Uh, and I think you'll be glad you did today. We have uh, we, we prepared something special today. We prepared actually a year in review show, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. If you've listened to the show before, thanks for coming back. And for those listening for the first time, just know that Behind the Shield is not a sales pitch. We're, we're not here to, to sell you anything. We're just here to talk about cybersecurity issues that concern us all. And in, as a matter of fact, we're, we, 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 we tend to put a little bit of humor in our, in our podcast, and uh, we want to make it a nice, easy listening 60 minutes of, a, uh, of enjoyment so that you can come back and uh, be a regular listener of the show. If you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Alexa, iHeartRadio, and uh, whenever wherever podcasts are offered. And uh, all the details, you can find it at virtual.com slash event. Now, because today's a special show, a year in review show, uh, I wanted to do a little something a little bit extra. So I went to Costco and got myself a family-sized pack of experts, a six-pack of experts, if you will. So I brought a lot of firepower, and I'm going to introduce them to you right now. So first off, we have Patrick Naum, a Virtual Guardian CEO. Hello. We have Bob Bennett, one of Navilogic's co-founders. Good afternoon. Bill Strube, the other co-founder of Navilogic. Hello. Christopher Reynolds, Partner Account Manager at OVH Cloud. Good afternoon. Tim Chase, Laceworks Field CISO. Good afternoon. And last but not least, Chris Vincent, Senior Vice President of Go-To-Market Strategy at Halcyon. Happy to be here, guys. Thank you, everybody, for, uh, for being here. Those who listened to the show before probably recognize a few of the panelists who have generously agreed to return today. So usually, it's a 30-minute hot topic segment, uh, but not today. Today... It's the recap of 2022, and I've asked each panelist um, to prepare for us uh, to bring forward the biggest cybersecurity story. Uh, well, not, not necessarily the biggest, but the one that uh, blew their mind the most or caught their attention the most, or simply the most interesting or the most fun story of 2022, according to them. It might not be the same for you, but according to these experts here. Um, it's quite unprecedented. This is the first time that we do this, and we're even pushing it a little bit further. Uh, we want you who are listening to us live right now, the audience, uh, your, uh, to submit your favorite story, if you have one, of 2022. And at the end of the podcast, we're going to try to get to it, and I'm going to put the entire panel in the hot seat and have them comment your story live. So no pressure, guys. All right, so let's get right into it. I put all your names into a hat, and I drew Bob. So, Bob, you're up first. Please, uh, what was your top cybersecurity story of 2022? All right, let's rock and roll. 
Um, I know it's going to be a popcorn round today, so this is going to be kind of fun. So um, I think we had a lot of things to talk about uh, last year. And for me, the story I picked was really one I think that's going to surprise people. And it's not something that's on the radar um, because everybody knows a lot of what we were talking about last year was ransomware, right? Well, uh, FBI data highlighted uh, that enterprises in aggregate are losing 51 times more money through BEC attacks, which is business email compromise, than they are through ransomware attacks. And so think on that for a minute, 51 times, because to break that story down, you've got to understand a couple things um, and you've got to understand the why it's happening um, after you've absorbed the shock of it, of course. So um, in the U.S., uh, the total losses are estimated at $2.4 billion. So take that in 2021 over a 39% increase from 2020. Um, while at the same time, uh, U.S. companies lost 49.2 million. So 49.2 million versus 2.4 billion. Now, when you think about how that has to add up to being more, the average cost of a ransomware attack was estimated at 2.2 million. So that doesn't add up to a lot of ransomware attacks, but we sure talk about them because of the size and the frequency. Now, keep in mind, those might be underreported as well but 51 times more money is still a lot of money. So how does that happen when the average business email compromise attack costs $120,000? So breaking that down further to understand that a little bit more, um, if you look at ransomware attacks, they tend uh, they tended to happen to some of the larger organizations, but also the midsize and the small um, as well. But they take more effort so they're more targeted than just a business email compromise. And they're a little more complex. Um, so on the other side of that, $120,000 per incident, you know, is a lot smaller than the average incident, 2.2 million. So you've got to make up a lot of attacks. Well, how do you do that? It's at the level on average where it might get reported. It might not, but it also doesn't shut down a business. So it doesn't get as much attention, let's say, right? You don't hear about it as much because it may not knock you offline. You can pay it and it's a mistake and you keep going. So think of how many there are out there. And I think you have to look at the small and medium enterprise to find where those numbers adding up to say, those are the organizations where the way a lot of these attacks happen are you're actually getting the account and you're going to act like a senior VP. So whether you're getting these, these accounts and taking them over, actually taking them over, it's not a phishing attack. They're actually taking the account over and they can see these emails and respond to them before the actual person. And so the person whose email it is may never even know. In the meantime, you may run a payment through and it's actually looks very similar to a vendor you have but if you don't have the system to check that the account number isn't slightly changed or something of that nature, then they're going to pay that and keep moving with their business. Um, you know, take the loss and move on. It's not as big as as a ransomware attack. So, um, you know, next level now, of course, there's kits for that, and the skill level again is lower. So it's just becoming easier, and I think that will be something to watch as to whether that continues or not. And I think as we, you know, we all think of whether a, a security uh, services vendor or a product vendor, we have to watch something like this and see how we're actually helping solve the problem uh, going forward. 
So I'll call it my surprise story of 2022. How's that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any comments, gentlemen, on the panel? I'm just smiling a little bit because every time at Navalogic that we have a new employee that starts and um, they publish that they're not working for Navalogic, we, we somehow get spammed with an email stating that, Bill, glad to be on board. Um, and, and then at the same time, they know our operations team and we'll send another message over saying, Bill approved a gift card purchase uh, for an event we're about to do or something along those lines. So it's, um, it's amazing the level of attention that attackers have to even the smallest organizational changes and how they can exploit that to get something as small as a gift card or as large as a redirected uh, wire transfer. Yeah. I think we'll continue to see it. Like I, th- I think that, you know, with LinkedIn, everybody's on LinkedIn these days. So mapping out and doing kind of that, you know, the reconnaissance is, is easier than ever. And so you can build out kind of those org charts. Um, but I think, uh, I think the protection for it kind of goes back to the same thing you would tell your people, kind of like you were just talking about the the gift card stuff, right? If you see something in an email and you're getting ready to transfer a lot of money, you probably want to pick up the phone and double check, right? Like, I think it all comes back to, to that kind of awareness training. I think we'll continue to see it because they're obviously getting traction. The gift card thing works because, you know, we get those still today, right? They even, um, they did it at our church, actually. Our, our, our minister sent out a message and was like, Hey, if you guys get something for me saying they want gift cards to give out, like don't do it. I mean, so they're they're kind of everywhere. So I think the BEC stuff is going to continue to to just be another vector of that. It actually really takes over uh, uh, and enters into the fraud uh, team, right? I mean, it's it's one of the other reasons you probably don't hear about it in the cyber world a tremendous amount, even though we have BEC solutions that do nothing but that, right? The other component is companies always report fraud on a balance sheet. Whereas uh, when you take a look at things like ransomware uh, and underreporting, you're probably going to have a, a problem with some of those threats unless they're very publicly exposed. Um, but BUC has been a problem for a long time. I get 13 emails a week from my CEO asking for uh, $100 gift cards because he's in a meeting in Japan and he needs them to satiate the appetite of uh, the customer on the other end. So it's a uh, it's unique. It's going to be a huge uh, risk vector. And there's uh, there's some really cool cool approaches out there to actually take care of it. Um, not a new thing, but they've definitely upped their game. So. Yeah, for sure. And it, and it all comes back to that element, too, of um, everybody's so busy doing their job. You see something like that. Oh, gift cards, great culture idea. And you want to execute and you just got to stop and think and inject that human part and say, wait a minute, is that right? And that's still where, you know, we, we can't. Uh, Elon hasn't addressed that for us yet. All right. Thank you very much. Very good. Uh, Off to a good start, guys. Uh, We're going to move on along with the second story and the next name out of the hat. Patrick, you are up. What is your favorite story of last year? As you all know, I like to follow the rules. So there are actually two stories, but they're on the same same topic. So a couple of things happened that I never thought I would see is two hackers being arrested. And guess what? They were arrested in Canada. So we had a gentleman in Gatineau near our, uh, the, the capital of our, of our country near Ottawa, another gentleman in Toronto. Uh, the first guy, Sébastien Vachon Desjardins, and uh, the second guy, Mikhail Vasiliev, were arrested. Uh, so the former uh, was arrested. He had a record, you know, drug dealing and whatnot, but they ended up uh, investigating 
through Interpol and collaboration at an international level between the FBI, our, our, our RCMP here, and they were about to shut down some servers in Bulgaria, and they found the trace, and I'm obviously summing this up very quickly, to this gentleman, and uh, they arrested him uh, on multiple charges, gun charges, drug, drug trafficking, and also uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, ransomware attacks. He was extradited to the U.S. in Florida, and he was just handed down. He wanted to do a plea bargain, and he actually exposed NetWalker's processes and how they work and the play-by-play of a ransomware attack. And he thought he was doing a, you know, a good deed, very collaborative, and he was still slapped with 20 years in prison because uh, the judge decided we need to put a stop to this and uh, show people that uh, this has to end. Uh, Mikhail didn't get his sentence yet. Uh, he's been uh, he's actually in the process of getting an extradition hearing to the to New Jersey, the state of New Jersey. I was reading and the 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 penalties there were like something like five years and the the highest amount between two hundred and fifty thousand and the damages. But clearly, uh, there was a precedent set in Florida, so hopefully this guy's going to be uh, caught and he was behind the lockbit attack that that's you know and all, and these guys combined hurt, you know, thousands of companies, individuals and costs. They each had, you know, bitcoins, uh, you know, to the tune of between 20 and, and 200 million dollars. The, the guy in Toronto got, you know, uh, he, he was raided, his house was raided a few months back on other charges. So he actually didn't think they would ever come back. So they caught him red handed. He couldn't lock his station. So they had all the secret, all the codes for all the Bitcoin um, accounts and they saw the, the the list of people that were attacked and they were about to get attacked. So they really hit a home run there. Unfortunately, in, in networks, uh, NetWalker's case, the first guy, it's one among a hundred identified people. And, and the other thing is that having, having seen all this, uh, I don't think anyone's going to come back to a jurisdiction where they could be arrested. And that to me is the biggest, it, it's the hope, but also um, you know, the negative side is that we always thought that we could put our hands around any of those guys because they were, you know, in, uh, in, in countries like China and Russia and countries that where we have no jurisdiction. So they happened to st- stick their head up and bang, they were, they were caught, uh, which is a good sign that there's hope. And just to close on, on those stories, uh, what's going to happen now, what's expected is we're going to have more traditional social engineering attacks. I'm already hearing reports of, uh, of people because the, with the pandemic being gone, you got people starting to drop USB keys everywhere and parking lots and showing up in offices and asking people to download files. So we're coming back to a physical world of hacking and espionage. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that as well because we, you know, we're, we're shifting gears uh, and back to how business was conducted a little closer to how it was conducted uh, back in the day. So more threat vectors are upon us. Never trust, always verify. Have you adopted a zero trust security framework? Do you require all users, whether in or outside your network, to be authenticated, authorized, and continuously validated to get or keep access to your applications and data? Only the paranoid survive. So keep your intellectual property safe with a zero trust attitude. Contact ESI at info at ESITechnologies.com or visit ESITechnologies.com. I remember that story because what, uh, what struck me was that uh, the French-Canadian guy, he, he got caught once 
uh, for possession of something. And he actually managed to get his job back at the federal government. But once he was extradited to the U.S., it was like 20 years. So he, so here, here's your job back. And over there, 20 years. I was like, okay, uh, a little bit different. Yeah, it's, um, it's yeah. unique when you start taking a look at uh, a lot of these uh, uh, exposés that come out with these groups. They're a lot like splinter cells, right? Um, you know, Conti is a great example. Uh, we held the beginning of last year when when uh, when Conti was taken down and everything was leaked by one of their affiliates. And then Conti did what anybody with unique purview does. They started a consulting business. They started teaching other people how to do it. So it's uh, the really unique thing here is that we're in this, this kind of time where you have this Hydra-esque cybercrime going on, where you cut one head off and 10 more pop up. And uh, I don't know exactly what the answer is to it, but it, uh, it seems to get worse and worse every day. So uh, uh, not to make a, a dismal prediction, but uh, it doesn't seem like cybersecurity is going away anytime soon, guys. Absolutely. All right. So that was good, Patrick. Thank you so much. Let's go on to the next panelist with his story. And it is Bill. Bill. Well, I'm going to start my story with kind of an interesting question. Does anyone on the panel have any food allergies? (laughs) No, no, not me. All right. Where is this going? So uh, where it's going is real quick. So my household has a couple different food allergies um, and uh, specifically peanut allergies. So it's pretty easy for us to go ahead and determine uh, and look on the back of anything we purchase that we're going to consume. And it's easy to find out whether it contains peanuts or is processed in a facility that may um, handle peanuts. So it's, it's pretty quick for us to determine whether or not we're gonna put someone at risk or if we're actually pretty safe. Um, And one thing that happened actually in uh, 2021 was the White House uh, issued executive order 14,028, much larger cybersecurity executive order for improving cybersecurity. But one thing that was actually added in there was something called an SBOM or software bill of materials where the White House is saying to manufacturers, uh, people who produce software, please start including what is in your software, the, the you know, any third-party codes, because let's, let's face it, we're all reusing code right now. Uh, third-party and open source uh, libraries are available to everybody. And they're being really well used. And frankly, it speeds up the development process, uh, creates uh, good software in a very quick timeline. So that part's really good. What's interesting, though, is we we don't really always know exactly what we're purchasing or consuming when we go out and actually buy software. Um, so the, the point is we need to provide better transparency, and that's why uh, 14,028 came out, and everyone's talking about SBOM or uh, Software Build Material Compliance. Uh, you can't you can't secure that which you do not know or cannot see. So um, good example of this are some of the supply chain attacks that we saw. And actually, I think SolarWinds is probably one of the big things that caused 14,028 to get passed. Subsequently, we saw Log4j come out uh, for, uh, for Java, and it became uh, a much higher talking point. So I think we can all agree that you can't secure that which you do not know. Uh, and we should not put ourselves in harm's way if we can avoid it. 
Um, the, the interesting thing is initially this had a lot of discussion, a lot of talk, a lot of people saying, yep, let's go forward. This, this sounds like a good idea until people started actually going through the process of trying to disclose what actually is in the software that they create. So organizations uh, such as Amazon, Microsoft, Intel, um, Palo Alto Networks, they're all part of the lobby group um, that is now actually trying to discourage agencies from requiring uh, SBOMs. And um, I think it's kind of interesting because I, I personally think it's because they don't want to disclose how the so, you know the secret sauce, how it's made and what the ingredients are uh, as they start putting things together. It becomes pretty easy to start um, understanding, you know, if you're using this particular library, maybe we could actually create a, uh, as a competitor, something very close to it or something that can compete on a feature by feature basis. Um, but as a consumer, I think that we want to make sure that we stop things and, and are aware of when things like Blog4j come up that we can actually protect ourselves. Uh, because personally, I don't want to wear a T-shirt that says process in a facility that may produce Log4j vulnerabilities uh, at the next conference I go to. Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Very nice, Bill. I appreciate that. I thought S-Bomb was a Tom Jones song. I don't know. I might be confused. <laughs> uh, S-Bomb is usually what people hear me around the office if I have a bad day, but it's a little bit different. So, <laughs> All right, Very Marco, nice. I'm going to yeah. jump on one there. Go ahead. Quickly, Bob, go ahead. You bet. Um, so I know we've talked about it and we talk about it in our third party assessment group and every organization we work with has to you know, determine this, right? Not just the, the agencies on the federal sides, um, where, where software is coming from. And so it was great to see that now we've got Microsoft and other organizations scanning GitHub and others. But there was an interesting stat uh, that I think we saw too is last year um, in the various public uh, source code um, places that are out there, 144,000 um, different packages automatically uploaded um, and available for download as well. So that's a that's a rat's nest that's going to be hard to untangle yet. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for that comment, Bob. Thank you, Bill, for the story. We're going to move on to Christopher. Uh, I think your story has a little bit more of an IT flavor to it. Well, what is it? Uh, yes, it does indeed, sir. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Ukraine's IT army, actually. Okay. That's the thing that really grabbed my attention this year. A um, little bit of context. Uh, leading up to the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Russia was already carrying out many cyber attacks, which was a continuation of operations against the Ukraine since the uh, invasion of Crimea in 2014. In early 2022, they intensified the attacks, which resulted in defaced websites, infected networks, wiped data, and DDoS attacks against government infrastructure and banking targets. Uh, these cyber attacks had the objective, obviously, of destabilizing the government as much as possible and creating social unrest in preparation for a physical attack, which followed inevitably on the 24th of February, uh, 2022. While we know what the Ukrainian army's response was to the invasion, the first hint of the IT army appeared on February the 25th. A guy called Yegor Yegor, I apologize to any Ukrainians in the audience, Alshev, who founded multiple cybersecurity companies in the Ukraine, made the first call for volunteers on Facebook. Those wanting to offer their skills could sign up using a Google form. Uh, Alshev also most likely approached Ukraine's deputy prime minister, a guy called Mikhailo Fedorov, uh, with the idea and on february the 26th he announced the creation of the volunteer cyber army which became known as ukraine's it army 
So more my research, the IT Army appears to consist of two parts. Number one is, is a public continuous global call to action that mobilizes anyone willing to participate in coordinated DDoS attacks against almost any Russian target, governmental or public. And this is mostly fed into by uh, the Ukraine IT Army's webpage and the Ukraine IT Army's Telegram channel. And then behind that, there's a second in-house team, likely consisting of Ukraine defense and intelligence personnel, experimenting and conducting ever more complex cyber operations against specific targets. The amount of subscribers to the public Telegram channel um, peaked at over 300,000, but it's since dropped to just over 200,000. However, of course, it's impossible to know how many of these subscribers actually undertake activities on behalf of the IT Army of Ukraine. For the public IT Army, tasks are assigned through an IT Army of Ukraine Telegram channel, which is then reposted into many other channels. Um, for the hacktivists there, the IT Army website offers tools that enable anyone to configure a DDoS attack that's automatically coordinated by the IT Army of Ukraine. And there are even stats to see how much data you personally are sending to the attack. So what did they achieve effectively? Well, the early tasks were requests to launch DDoS attacks against major Russian targets. By the 28th of February, the Ukrainian government were claiming they hacked many governmental, banking, and media sites, including the site of the FSB, uh, Secret Service in Russia, obviously, the National Bank of Belarus, and TASS, uh, the, the media, um, Russian media agency. On the other side, the private in-house team concentrates on much more sophisticated attacks, and some of which are quite disturbing. Um, they've actually used Clearview AI to identify dead Russian soldiers and then contact the dead soldiers' families via social media to Jeez. report their deaths and allegedly dispel the myth of a special operation in the Ukraine. Uh, in addition, they've also posted videos of Russian soldiers uh, sending many kilograms of allegedly looted goods from a post office in Belarus to Russia. They've identified the soldiers, the soldiers' unit, the contact details of the family where it's going to, and the origin of the loot in certain circumstances I looked into was Buka, uh, which is the Ukraine location where we know that uh, for certain atrocities took place. Wow. Uh, so with all of this, I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, a lot of what the IT Army encourages its volunteers to do is actually illegal, uh, even though it's an against an aggressor nation undertaking an illegal invasion. Mm. So I summarized it really quickly there. There's a lot more going on behind that. I'm sure my colleagues can add a little bit of color to it, but that is absolutely my story of 2022. Wow, yeah. And it reminds me, your story reminds me uh, that uh, we're coming up on uh, on one year of the war. And I think it's next, mo it's next month and uh, we tend to forget it maybe. We're far, far from it. We see it on the news, CNN, but yeah, one year already. Um, I think I'd add a comment to that, you know, yeah. and it also underscored the importance of incident response because early in the war, what would happen is that the Ukrainian um, government and, and army and IT army would detect an inside attacks from within their network. And obviously, number one, they detected them. Number two, they had to figure out where they were coming from and what was going on because they couldn't understand until they correlated the advance of the Russian troops in the uh, country's telecommunications firm's uh, uh, remote offices. So as the Russians advanced, took control of the offices, they obviously had internal access to the networks and were able to launch attacks. So then they were able to correlate or defend because they would shut down all the remote offices 
where the Russians were advancing and then they were able to limit the attack or stop the attacks altogether. So that happened early on and it's probably very, um, you know, it's because of the Ukrainian's IT army, Christopher, as you mentioned, and they were prepared to at least identify and detect these threats. So, Thank you very much. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Patrick. We're going to move on to the next story, which will be brought to us by Tim. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. I think mine um, is fairly recent. We've talked a little bit about some things that kind of surround the topic, but mine actually is around um, the Okta uh, breach that happened kind of late last year. So um, if, if everybody remembers, I know we've all had a lot of holidays since then, but if everybody remembers um, Okta's source code was found to be breached um, off of GitHub. And so that follows obviously some other stuff and some other issues they'd had earlier in the year. Um, but uh, it looked like kind of their, their authorization service that they have, uh, the source code for it, not Auth0, because they have a couple of different products via acquisition, but one of their main software products, um, someone was able to get into their source code system, their repo and GitHub, um, and download their source code. And so there's a couple of, of areas that I think this one kind of stands out to me. One is, I think, um, you know, specifically related to, to Okta, um, I always find it interesting because I see this very often, GitHub notified Okta that they saw suspicious activity. And so I see that a lot in the industry where um, it, it's not us as practitioners, not people that are in the security team that find it. It's our third parties that notified that something looks fishy. So I often wonder, you know, do we not have enough controls in place to monitor for things like that with the source code? Um, and, and also, I find it a little bit interesting that, um, you know, if they were able to get access to their repo, Okta's entire business is to kind of be that face of authentication into the different systems. So one would assume that they bypass Okta's system somehow, or maybe they could go straight into GitHub without having to go into Okta. I found I found that something that they didn't address, but I found that one of the things that was interesting to me is, you know, assuming that you, you know, eat your own dog food, so to speak, like, um, how, how did that happen? But holistically, you know, I think that this is sometimes the forgotten realm of um, third party security or whatever you want to call it. Right. Because uh, a, a lot of times we focus on the AC vendors. Right. It's kind of the notorious one from Target or we focus on phishing um, is, is kind of a vector. But if you go all the way back to SolarWinds, like we look at, you know, SolarWinds was huge and, you know, they had all of these these, um, you know, kind of uh, versions of their of their software running inside data centers and uh and that caused you know the third party to be able to get access but when you go back to how how did that happen well once again like somebody managed to get a hold of the solar and source code they put some code in there that was malicious nobody ever saw it and it got pushed in the next round right so i i think things like this happen more often than maybe we pay attention to. And I think it's going to continue to happen because it's kind of a, a backdoor way. And we don't always remember to, to secure um, our uh, third party um, platforms maybe. So that's my, that's kind of why um, Okta really um, interested me. Yeah, that was a big, that was a big splash. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bill. 
I was going to say, I would think that uh, accessing your source code on GitHub would be a perfect use case for step up authentication, but you know, that's just my opinion. Should be. <laughs> Should be. Especially if you have that product as part of what you offer to the, uh, the marketplace. Do you have difficulty recruiting and retaining good IT resources? Is your focus on your core business and not on IT? You need ESI and trust your infrastructure to a partner focused on your IT, delivering solid services, improving security, reducing risks of failure, all while reducing your TCO. Find us at esitechnologies.com and click on Manage Services. Talk, talk about uh, taking a hit, uh, reputation hit. You know, like the, the Okta brand is like, oof, it really, really, really took a hit. And these things, even though it's a third party and it's not the first time that I see this, you know, um, I remember a particular breach here, a bank here, um, which was breached. You see their, the bank's logo, first page of the newspaper. Meanwhile, it was the uh, third party's uh, web application that was really breached, not the bank. And uh, But it's not that company's logo that's on the first page of the paper. That doesn't sell. Um, and I'm dating yeah. myself when I say paper, right? I, I really mean online. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Thank you very much. That was great, Tim. Uh, let's go. Number six, Chris, you are up. Bring it home for us. Cool. Um, so, guys, I'll, I'll actually try to be quick on this. Uh, the most profound story that I saw was one that came out at the end of the year uh, here in December, and it was about uh, uh, the global insurance conglomerate Zurich Cyber or uh, rather chief executive came out and said that cyber is set to be uninsurable at a faster pace than natural calamities. And uh, the topic of, of the talk got my interest. So I read the article and in the article, uh, Mr. Greco goes on to say a few things. Uh, the cascading effects of a cyber incident with critical infrastructure uh, can't be quantified, right? Uh, that initially focusing on privacy risk to individuals was missing the bigger picture uh, of, of these people that he quotes, which are the attackers, uh, that they can severely disrupt our lives. Um, that seems like a no-dust statement coming from a chief executive. But uh, at the end of the day, it, it was it was interesting as I read this article. Uh, he goes on to say insurers are now trying to uh, essentially claim that ransomware attacks are warlike actions. They're sponsored by nation states. Uh, you also saw um, Lloyd's of London come out earlier this year and say something very similar. Hey, they're going to provide a carve out. Uh, to any attribution that can be given to a nation state and not pay it because it's it's considered an act of war, right? Um, he goes on to say that uh, governments need to step in more and they need to impose more private sector um, um, collaboration. Um, no disagreement there, but we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and then finally says that, you know, insurance companies, they can only absorb so much. So, what struck me about this, insurance companies in general have the smartest, most highly paid and qualified mathematical actuaries and data scientists on the planet. Yet when it comes to a 
a trend line. Cyber insurance is a line of business, can't be trended better than a natural calamity. That to me made zero sense. A natural calamity is a complete, uh, a complete unique event. There is no projecting it. If you look at the trend line of cyber attacks, they've gone up every year for 20 years. It should give you at least a general trend to say that the government should step in with public education. I agree with that, but I think that cyber insurers, if they're doing their debt to their customers and in, in true spirit of collaboration, that they would actually also educate customers. Um, instead, what I've seen as I've talked to them, because I have this uh, passion project with the cyber insurance industry, um, we're trying to help them make better recommendations, right? Better security stack recommendations. Today, what they do is they take this very generic set of things, say, this is what you need to have to be insurable. These other things will put you in a better class. And then they still raise your rates by 30%, right? I think the challenge behind this is five years ago when they were making a boon of money off of selling cyber insurance, everything was fine. But now that losses uh, are, are uh, north of their premium collections, meaning that they're at a total loss for the line of business, now there's a cry, cry afoul, right, uh, in the market in general. Uh, I think it is cyber insurer's obligation to help educate the community the same way they do with auto insurance. Take driver's, driver's education, put this stick in your car, we can see how fast you drive, see if you have good habits. There are so many basic things we can do that we just don't today. And that really struck me as something that, of all the topics from last year, to, to, to really hit on the biggest pain point in cybersecurity, which is insurance. And then to see that these global chiefs are starting to really try to mitigate their risk by making these very public statements about how they want to change insurability. Uh, that to me was uh, was uh, a little crazy, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we all got to work together to, to try to make it better. So I'll open it up for four. Yeah, absolutely. Any comments, guys? I was going to say real quick that the the uh, the bar or the barrier to get a policy in the past was just way too low. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to the days where we actually have to provide, you know, functional programs and demonstrate those functional programs to say whether an organization is insurable or not. And that will that will hopefully help the uh, the problem statement of uh, whether or not cybersecurity is actually an insurable uh, line of business. I'm seeing it here. Every time customer I talk to, they're being, they are telling us and they're showing us how prescriptive their insurance are. They're actually telling them to deploy an EDR. Before it was protect your desktop. So it was general statements, right? Have a policy, do this, do that. Now it's specific. You need a SOC. You need an incident response plan. You need an EDR. They're very, very prescriptive. Okay. And if, if not, and they gauge the coverage based on that and the premiums based on that, right? So we're seeing a lot of that because I, I don't see the, a world where there's going to be no cyber insurance. But those statements are to push, move the needle. But to your point, Chris, you know, government has to step in. Companies have to step in themselves. And there's no amount of insurance that will you know, cover bad behavior. So companies have to take responsibility as well. And the insurers absolutely have to educate much more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, that was great. Uh, thank you uh, very much, Chris, for uh, that story and everybody else. Um, the last name that was in the hat, believe it or not, gentlemen, it, it was mine. So I'll, uh, I'll give you my favorite story. 
which absolutely delighted me, even though people, you know, might have been freaking out a little bit. And it was the Twitter blue checkmark fiasco. Uh, that story was just, uh, it's like that Michael Jackson meme uh, eating popcorn. That's what it was. Uh, I, I like to live tweet, uh, to live tweet sport, uh, sports, football and, and soccer and whatnot. And uh, I'm on Twitter. I've been on Twitter for 10 years. And when I saw, you know, I, I like like all of us, you know, when uh, Elon Musk took over um, and it was the sale was finalized on October 27th, to be precise. And I remember him saying, you know, we got to make we have to make money. So he starts laying off Twitter personnel. And then and then a few days later, uh, on November 1st, he decides, he says, well, uh, the blue check mark, which is for those who don't know, is the way that an account is verified that it's truly that person behind the account um, is now going to cost $8 a month, but, but anybody can get it. So if anybody can get it, well, you can just imagine. And for those who remember that story, all hell broke loose. So uh, Nintendo tweeted super Mario brothers, uh, flipping the bird, LeBron James wanted a trade from the Lakers. Coca-Cola, this was one of my favorite. Coca-Cola promised to put cocaine back in Coke with a thousand retweets. Uh, so that was really funny. Chiquita Banana, which also said it had uh, overthrown the Brazilian government. That was great. So mostly harmless fun, right? But then you can turn your, your uh, attention to Eli Lilly, uh, the pharmaceutical giant, which tweeted that uh, insulin was going to be free. And all of a sudden, the, their stock starts taking a hit. And it, it really, it was all over the news. Uh, and, you know, I've read a lot of articles on it. Uh, there's some of them that say it was coincidental um, that the stock took a hit for other reasons than this Twitter fiasco. But I'm sure that this Twitter deal was uh, impactful. And to me, the fact that um, this spoofing of... Uh, you know, the level to which spoofing can cause this chaos. Um, that was my favorite story of 2022. And it's, uh, yeah. Any, any, any comments on this? Wait till chat GPT starts nope. uh, oh. buying uh, blue check marks everywhere and impersonating everyone. Oh man. Yeah. Let's not get into that. That's, that's going to be a whole other episode. Um, I promised at the beginning, at the top of the show, that this was going to be a special show where we're going to put the panel on the hot seat. And indeed, we've got a couple of uh, stories and I would like, we're going to go rapid fire here. We got about 15 minutes left, so we're good. Um, the first story, let me just, here we go. It is from Ryan M. And he says the story of the year, and this may be more for the Canadian panelists, uh, Quebec passing Bill 25 to enhance PII protections. Uh, so did you say Canadians on the panel? He's right. Are Canadian Canadians on the panel? So, so go ahead, Patrick, if you want of to take it. Of course, I'm going to take it. So, actually, that's a response to what you were mentioning, Chris, of government uh, stepping in, a bit like GDPR in Europe. You know, we had the before and after the Jardin event here, which was one of our financial institutions, where there was a like everyone, like millions of, of, of Quebecers out here have accounts there, and they were breached. 
the great reason the breach is not relevant in this conversation, but uh, the law was accelerated based on that to force organizations to comply in protecting PII information, um, you know, in the private and public sector. So uh, it's been in uh, in force since since the fall, and and uh, people there's a breach notification as well in, in the law. And guess what? The largest companies, medium sized companies. You have, a, have, have reported the breaches and reported that to the, the overseeing uh, organization of this, of this law, which is the, um, the Quebec um, uh, Information Safeguard, whatever organization we have uh, in which you need to report to. So that law is coming into effect. We're doing a lot of work uh, to help customers comply, and there's a lot of work to do. But I think it was a right move. Everybody's scrambling, well, right? <laughs> All companies yeah, are scrambling, scrambling now. You know, there's time. It's, uh, it's over three years. There's certain things. You know, there's milestones. So you can't do everything at once. But uh, people are mobilized, which is good. And it's, it's going to be healthy for everyone. Did you know you can slow down and isolate cyber threats by leveraging micro-segmentation? As the most certified integrator in Canada, ESI can help you define security controls for each unique segment of your network minimizing access to cyber criminals. Contact us at info at esitechnologies.com or visit esitechnologies.com. I got another one here for the panel. Um, there is the, in December, there's a ransomware guy. This one is, com is coming from Paul. Uh, there was a ransomware gang who apologized to Toronto's Sick Children's Hospital for having ransomware them. And uh, so they apologized and they they gave him the, the decrypting key for free. So what do you what do you think about that? Is that a good business? Is that the well, what's yeah, your opinion? There, there, there are some standards among some of these these gangs, right? So that's honor the, amongst uh, thieves, honor amongst thieves. In, in some cases, right? I would say that the bigger ones that there there are for sure, the bigger RAS operators. Um, amongst the smaller ones, they'll just, it's voluminous, right? So what they have is a target list. That target list, back to Tim's topic of, of you know, Octa being breached. If you look at all the software vendors uh, where access or credentials have been breached, you know, uh, threat actors have a treasure trove of access and credentials to use forever, right? And uh, I think that's the one thing a lot of people don't realize is people spend a tremendous amount of time on identity, but with access, legitimate access and legitimate credentials, I bypass all of your identity stack, right? Um, in this particular case, hospitals on a list that was on their, you know, no fly zone. And they, uh, they essentially said, Hey, sorry, we're not uh, in the business of ransoming, you know, healthcare organizations. So I thought it was pretty, uh, I thought it was pretty cool at the same time. It's uh you know, that also being said for every one of those that you get, there's a hundred that you don't. So, yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Oh, I want to slip one more, one more, one more. I got uh, my manager in my ear telling me two stories, but there's a third one and I want to get to it, Jen. I'm sorry. Here we go. Uh, the one story. So this one comes from uh, Jean-Francois. He says, the one story that I found utterly troublesome is the breach of the last password password management web service. It's a password manager, for God's sakes. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it at that. I'll keep it at that. What do you guys think about uh, a password vault uh, being breached? 
they've always made me nervous. I have to be honest, like one place to store all of your passwords. Like that seems like it, I, I find it hard to believe it hasn't been breached <laughs> already, but, um, do you uh, not use one, I, Tim? I, I, I do one? not. They're all, they're all right here. I have it in my notebook that's sitting inside my computer. Right. Uh, of course. Um, not really. Um, no, I, I, I <laughs> sticky note. All, Where do you live? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a sticky note behind your side. Yeah. You know, on my computer. Absolutely. In my hotel room right now. It, it's, it's, it's perfect. Um, no, I, I mean, I personally don't. I know that's probably odd. Um, I, I do store some like on like I guess on the, the computer, you know, which doesn't sync anywhere. And your computer is encrypted with, you know, hardware um keychains and things like that. So um but uh you know, it was also an interesting response from their competitor that basically was like, I forget which competitor it was, probably doesn't matter, but they came out and they're like, What are you doing? You're obviously doing this wrong. Like you you're not making your keys unique. Like they actually came out and were like, you were kind of doing it wrong in the first place, which I thought that was an interesting part of the story was, was the response from the, the security arch the chief security architect or whatever he was chief of architecture for the, one of the competitors. I think yeah. that's, what's interesting about it, Tim. And, and you mentioned a couple of things there. One is the centralization of that risk, but you're also, it's sort of a misdirection because you think your master password unlocks all the other ones. Well, if I can bypass that, through some other mechanism, right? Whether it's bad key management or secret management or other things, it doesn't matter. And so, yeah, it's just, it is troubling. It's very troubling. Well, that's what Okta has become for a lot of people is their password manager. So, um, passwordless society, isn't that what everybody, no. I think Microsoft who originally was pushing that, like pushing to a no password type thing where, you know, it's just authentication based on bio or um, some other method, right? Yeah. And just so uh, you know, I was a LastPass customer until uh, last year. And uh, moving on to another uh, password uh, that I, I will keep uh, for myself. But uh, it was quite easy, actually, to move from one to the other. So if anybody thinks that it's a pain in the butt, no, it took about an hour and everything was done. So there you go. Okay, that was great. Thank you very much, uh, everybody, for your stories. A uh, little recap there of the year. That was great. Um, something else that is new to the show. Another new thing is that uh, to close it out today, um, seeing as this is the first show uh, of the year, I've asked the panel to come up, come out with either a wish for 2023 or a prediction, cybersecurity wish or a cybersecurity prediction for the new year. I threw your hats, your names back in the hat, and the first one to speak will be Patrick. Go ahead, please. Uh, I'm going to go with a wish, but I'm going to give a quick prediction before. Things are going to get worse before they're going to get better, but I'm going to leave it at that. That was actually the theme at Black Hat last summer. Um, wish is the following. With all the geopolitical you know, problems we're going through right now and protectionism, uh, there's a new concept that's starting to resonate is digital sovereignty. More and more organizations and countries to start, obviously, are looking at, you know, from a supply chain perspective, military data and protection, they're looking at centralizing more and more control over everything. And we are in a protectionist uh, trend right now. At the same time, when you do that, you have more and more you need to invest more, be more nimble. The organizations will have to develop much faster to be efficient. 
um, and, you know, being, be able to self, you know, sustain themselves. You know, some countries are in better position than others uh, to get there. Well, that acceleration uh, will create more and more gaps, as we've seen over the pandemic. As people, you know, digitally transform, they open up gaps. But the context is one of economic downturn, of a recession. So you're going to have a situation where people may decide to invest less in cybersecurity when we all know they will need to invest more. If you have weakened companies because of the economic uh, you know, context, it'll take just one security or cybersecurity incident to kill the company, you know, what's left of it. So my wish is that we at least sustain investment um, in cybersecurity. I think it should increase, but at least sustain it would be my wish for in, in the global context of uh, what we're seeing today. Thank you, Patrick. Christopher, your wish or your prediction? Uh, it's been more of a wish. Um, I was kind of looking forward and seeing what's coming down the pipe that could be sort of a paradigm shift for everybody. And I think uh, quantum computing is there. Um, it's approaching. We can see that it has value. Um, we can almost simulate things that it's going to be able to do. Uh, so my wish is that somebody is going to be able to use um, quantum computing to develop the next level of cybersecurity. And I've seen a couple of things going around like quantum random number generation and quantum key distribution uh, cryptography. So these are good things. I hope they're going to come down the pipe quickly and I hope they're going to come down the pipe more quickly than the bad guys can get hold of quantum computing uh, devices. Right. Thank you, Christopher. That was great. Bob, you're up next. All right. I'll, uh, I'll give you a combo with a thread. Um, so I think in, in looking over the course of this year and what I see uh, happening over the course of next year, a lot of the solutions we work with are starting to actually get better and do the things we want. And I think a lot of that is, is going through REST APIs, um, being able to combine information. Um, and merging with uh, what we see in the AI world, I think that AI is going to start to hit those products and actually help us in security be better. Not that it's going to cover all those areas, Patrick, when you say it's going to get worse before it's going to be better, it's going to get better in some areas. But when I tie it back to the story that I brought up, you know, we can we can see anomalies in what happens on our on our company networks. But what we can't do is to say, okay, is this vendor I'm paying? And how do I know that this is, you know, right when there's a person involved, right? We can see we pay vendors a certain way, um, but picking up on those changes with AI, that would be my wish. I know we've got to go one step further for that. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Tim, you're up next. Your wish or your prediction? Uh, I'll quickly do both. Uh, I got them in my head. So my wish okay. is that we would, uh, as a security industry, stop doing checkbox security. That is one of my pet peeves, doing things that, um, you know, meet chat, like GRC, I think is a function of checkbox security. Like, is, is that really valuable to get to fill out a 200 page questionnaire before you onboard a vendor? Are you doing anything? Are you mitigating risk? I don't know. Um, so, you know, finding ways to do actual security rather than just checking a box. Um, and then my prediction, I think we'll see um, tool consolidation kind of in our industry. Everybody has seen, probably over the years, I think, I think Opta put it together. I mean, I can't remember like the big um, uh, chart of all the security tools that are out there. And then so like when people get ready to actually have a problem they need to solve, like how do you actually know what to look at, right? And what do you know, what works, what doesn't, what's marketing and what's not. And so I, I think just kind of with our economy that we're in, 
um, with the startup market being what it is, like I think that we'll see some more tool consolidation and maybe some okay. some acquisitions and flushing out of things. Okay, thank you, Chris. Go ahead. Yeah, everybody stole my wish already, so I'm gonna <laughs> throw that penny in the well, um, and I'm gonna go to a prediction. Um, I think that moving forward, you're gonna start to see that this RAS business model, which is ransomware as a service business model. It's going to become the delivery mechanism for the threat actors in the future. Um, what do I mean by that? Um, if you look at how RAS operators run their business model, they deploy ransomware as the very final step of what they do. They use many blended threats. They're very good at evasion techniques at bypassing um, and if you start taking a look at them, they're really hyper-targeted, which is why they've been so successful. I think you're going to start to see, as you've already started to see, some of these groups are starting to adopt other threats to deploy, destructive malware, uh, taking a look at uh, exfiltration and data stealers. Um, if you look at it, there's too much money behind it, and it becomes a front for nation states to be able to pilfer data. And there's no attribution to that, despite what cyber insurers say. Um, so when you start taking a look at it, you're not going to, you'll still have these voluminous based attacks, but a lot of it will be nothing more than uh, a, a decoy for this RAS business model, which is going to give rise to the future of all cyber threat actors. That's my prediction. Okay. Bill, go ahead. All right. Um... My prediction, I'm not going too far out on a ledge here. If you look at 2022, we saw some of the largest DDoS attacks ever. Uh, Cloudflare and Google, um, where they were able to handle them at, uh, at different levels of capability and response, as well as uh, stopping those attacks. But I still think we're going to see more proliferation of uh, botnet DDoS attacks in 2023 at larger scale than we've ever seen. And then that's my prediction. My wish is that organizations, whether it's a guided or self-guided risk assessment using something like the CSF uh, framework to walk through, understand what they have, how effective it is, uh, where do they need some additional um, attention to resources, uh, apply those resources and improve their security program. Okay, thank you, Bill. And um, my um, I'll throw my hat in the ring too. My prediction for 2023 is the rise of AI. I, I'm not also on going out on a, on a very uh, long limb here. Um, so the rise of AI with the chat GPT and whatnot, uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's going to be uh, a banana is what uh, is going to be the changes that are going to occur. And my wish is that a little bit like Christopher said, I wish that the good guys will be able to leverage it the most, so uh, so it'll benefit us in our fight against the bad guys, right? So that's my uh, uh, my wish. Uh, we're running out of show. Uh, thank you, everybody, for the special episode. Uh, it was really fun, and we just landed this jumbo jet on a dime, uh, right in the nick of time. Thank you for all your comments, your insights, and to everybody listening out there. Um, if you missed any part of today's event. The show will be made available on most popular podcast services sometime next week. So look out for that. Remember virtualguardian.com slash event for all those details. And finally, before I, I sign off, I just want to thank everybody. Um, I also want to thank uh, Jennifer behind uh, driving the, the boat behind the scenes 
And I hope everybody found the last 60 minutes uh, entertaining. And we'll see you again next month when uh, we will have abnormal security. We're going to come back to our more normal uh, format and uh, abnormal security will be our spotlight sponsor. So remember, as always, when you're behind the shield, you're ahead of the game. Take care, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you.